Hey everyone, welcome to One Church Teal Live and welcome to a conversation about faith and science and the creation narrative. Uh, this last weekend, uh, we launched a brand new series here at One Church TO uh, called Planet Earth, and we're exploring the wonder of God's second greatest gift, as Dr. Catherine Hayhoe calls it. And she'll be in next week's gathering uh, teaching, and she, of course, is a professor from Texas Tech University, the head of their climate division. She's been named by the United Nations as a champion of the earth of science and innovation, and she's a follower of Jesus. And she's going to be sharing in our weekend gatherings and being available for a live Q&A at the end of the gathering. And then the following week, our teaching pastor, Keith Smith, is going to be talking about God's plan to repair this planet and our role in it. And I think sometimes, maybe along the way, we picked up some theology that made us think that maybe this planet was somewhat disposable, that in the end, God's judgment comes down, the planet's over, we're out of here. Well, we're going to talk about maybe what Scripture might say about our plan and role in God's uh, repair uh, and His new heaven and the new earth being created here on earth. So we'll get to that in week three. But this past weekend, we explored faith and science, and we explored really the creation narrative from Genesis chapter one. And I think I sufficiently confused enough of you that I brought... Somebody that I, I consider a, a biblical expert, somebody that is a, a friend of mine, but I want to introduce you to Dr. Peter Newman. And uh, Peter is a academic dean at Master's College and Seminary, uh, but uh, he's a, also a friend of ours, and he grew up in this church, actually. Peter, how long ago did you leave this church? When you left college, or? How, how old am I? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, I would have attended APC from the time I was about 12 or 13 years old, right through till I went away to Bible college. So about eight years, that would have been in the, in the, mostly in the 19, early 1980s to about 1989, around so that time. Before some of you were born, or maybe after some of you were born. Yeah. But, uh, friends, you know, this conversation actually came out of, uh, one that, uh, Peter came to and talked to our staff. And it was such a meaningful moment of helping to understand the creation narrative, how to understand scripture, and even to understand the value of faith and science working together that I knew I wanted to have him come and share with our church community where we're all trying to grow deeper into the person of Jesus and also to understand God's word. And so, uh, Peter, I'm going to start. We're going to, I'm going to invite you to put in the chat room any questions that you might have for Peter. And uh, Matt will be curating them, and we'll answer as many as we can in this next hour we have together. I know that it's nice to hear that we have uh, some of our small groups online uh, watching in. So there's groups of you watching in living rooms right now. We're glad to see you there. I saw Silverina's group is already in the chat room. If there are other uh, small groups, jump in. Let us know where you're viewing from uh, so we can give you a shout-out, too, as we journey through this time together. And so I'm going to start with really what was the opening part of the weekend message, which had to deal with reconciling this issue of faith and science. And from our weekend, Heather in our chat room asked this question, but how do you counter the scientific community's messaging, counter the scientific messaging that faith has no place in science? So just an easy one to get you started there, Peter. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, because we, we do have this narrative that I think we uh, live with both in our our culture, but also maybe as Christians that you have uh, what what Heather's saying is you have some scientists maybe saying there's no place for faith in science, and somebody that might represent that type of view is somebody like Richard Dawkins, who is very adamant. You know, faith is is silliness, religion is silliness, and you just need to be uh, scientific. And on the other hand, you have Christians also saying, "Well, I'm a person of faith, not a person of science." And that also is problematic. It's it's problematic. So let me speak to the Christians first. It's problematic because if we believe that God created everything, then everything that anything everything that we could discover, whether we're Christian or not, um, in this earth through scientific methods, we're just discovering something about the creation that He made. And furthermore, Christians are relying on scientific inventions, uh, science and technology all the time. We are actually be able to communicate right now <laughs> because of science and technology. We, we trust uh, medicine the doctor might give us, et cetera, et cetera. So, so Christians are people of science, even if they want to deny that. So how do we bring these things together? 
And what some historians have pointed out is this narrative that is embedded in our culture, that science and faith are always in conflict, is something that really came up strongest in the late 1800s. There was a couple of people that wrote books on it, that type of thing, but it's really not been, uh, there's a lot of, there's, it's not actually true <laughs> that, that it, you're either a person of science or that science excludes religion or vice versa. And real history is actually far more complicated on this um, in that, again, for Christians, we have to believe that God speaks through what we discover in nature, but also for uh, scientists, science assumes, um, well, science is about a method of discovering things in the physical world, whether it's physics, chemistry, biology, and in the social science sciences. Um, but the the idea that that sort of the the church or other religions have stood against certain scientific discoveries or this type of thing, or that they've always been they've always been enemies, doesn't quite meet the facts. Uh, um, so I, I even I'm just going to forget her name here. Let me just Heather. look up something just quickly here. Uh, Elaine Howard Eklund has done actually studies on scientists in the United States and asked them about their belief in God. And so part of what we find in her studies are that there are probably a, a higher number of people in the sciences that might have trouble believing in God, but actually it's not the majority. Hmm. And we expect it to be far more uh, the idea that if you're a scientist or in the sciences, you don't believe in God. In fact, that's that's not the case. There's quite a bit of openness. So somebody like Richard Dawkins is really overstating the case. Now he has his opinions on this, and he's an atheist and and feels his way about this. But you you don't have to agree with Richard Dawkins. He's actually not simply doing science by saying there's no such thing as God. Um, because science has proved it. That's actually outside of the realm of what science does to deal with those issues. You'd have to get into philosophy and theology and, and history and other th things to answer those types of questions. So I, I think one way of dealing with, with Heather's question, which is a good one, is, is really beginning to recognize that, um, that, that, that narrative isn't, it isn't true. And for Christians, we ought to be people who actually embrace both science and what the Bible talks about. Now, sometimes it leads to some awkward conversations and, and perhaps some potential uh, areas that look like they're in conflict and there's ways of dealing with that. But, um, yeah, I think, it, I think our response would be it's not quite a true narrative. And as Christians, then we have to have something to say about how would we, um, how do we navigate? through where there sometimes seems to be tensions. So let's explore that for a little bit, Peter, in terms of even reading scripture. We talked about on the weekend how um, there have been young adults in this world and culture, and all of us have been a young adult at some point in time, who and got a Sunday school understanding of maybe some scripture and they encounter facts that seem to contradict scripture, and it kind of erodes yeah. their trust. That, like if, if the Bible can't get it right here, then where else isn't it getting it right? And there begins to be this drift and they almost feel like they neither, they either need to suspend that logical, rational intersect and learning of science and have a faith world over here and the science world over here, or they, they leave the faith world over that. Uh, how has reading scripture formed theology and what, what would you say to us listening here and maybe the way we've been taught it even over the years? Uh, yeah, another, another great. Uh, question. This is, you know, this is the the big one, sort of like, how do we bring together what uh, Christians would say scripture is what reveals uh, uh, God's primary way of revealing his will to us, his story, what he, how he intends people to live, what is our purpose and all these types of things. And yet there's some stories in there that appear to be talking about um, moments in history. And, and here we're primarily talking about the early chapters of Genesis, that right. first book in the Bible where it talks about God creating everything. And, and it seems to indicate here's how he did it. And here's how he created the first people and um, you know, where the languages came from, et cetera, et cetera. So we have uh, those types of stories that were sometimes taught. You, you, need to, you need to read those stories and understand them in the same way that we would understand a history book we would read today 
or the newspaper that we might read today. In other words, well, this is just a report of actual, um, you know, sort of a literal way of, of taking these things. And that is one way of, of reading those texts. Then if, but if we do that, then we run into a situation where we enter, go into a geology course or biology course. And, and like you said, Jonathan, our, it doesn't take too long for our faith to begin to get eroded if we have any measure of confidence in the observations that people are making and, and uh, how they put those together to show like this, this earth seems to be a lot older than what some Christians have said. There's some Christians that would say the earth is six to 10,000 years old. If we look at the Bible and sort of trace back genealogies, right. uh, they believe we can estimate, okay, here's the, in fact, there's, you know, one Christian Bishop Usher couple of centuries ago, a few centuries ago, who's, who thought, I've nailed the day of creation. It's this particular day in history, uh, you know, the year 4,000 something or other. So that would make the earth 6,000 or some odd years old. Um, but the question arises, is that the only way to read the Bible? That makes us a little bit nervous because what it makes it seem to us is, uh, are we beginning to give up the authority of scripture, this sort of plain reading of the text, just because we have this report of, you know, uh, geology tells us something different or, or it apparent, you know, geologists are trying to maybe tell us something that maybe isn't true because we know God's word is true. Um, I, I, what makes me feel a bit better about having other options and taking a, 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 let's just say a flat reading of Genesis 1 to 3 is to recognize that throughout history, Christians have not always read that text literally. And not just since the 1800s when geology started to come into its own and we realized this earth and the universe is a lot older than we thought it would be. Um, it, we started, you know, early on you have, uh, well, fourth century Augustine talking about he didn't believe the first chapter of Genesis was literal because it took several and 6,000 years before, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years before that, here you have a fourth century Christian saying, no, I don't read it flat with a flat literalism there because this text is telling me something else. And a lot more of the Bible scholarship that has come up in the last uh, number of decades has been demonstrating that, that the ancients who first received these books of Genesis weren't really interested in the questions that we are trying to get at. Hmm. Um, that when we're asking, well, does this, does Genesis tell us how old the earth is, how God made things and, and those types of things. So um, maybe just, I'll just pause there, John, see if you have any, uh, need any clarification, but there's more we could go into on this regarding um, how we look at those first texts. Well, I mean, I mean, this applies to maybe even the reading of all of scripture. You could go even into the Pauline literature that in the New Testament written to specific churches, letters or correspondence, a style of writing. Like how, how, you know, when you're listening in and there's people listening in the live stream, a lot like me, a lot like you growing up too, Peter, you're reading yourself into the text and that's the power of scripture too. It's alive and vibrant and speaks to us even today, but, but it is written to an audience that, that yes. wasn't specifically 2021. Uh, followers of Jesus, but it's written to followers of Jesus. How do how do you reconcile that in and like we'll get to Genesis because I know that many of you are, would love to dive into that Genesis and jump into the chat room with any questions you have for Peter along the way. But but how, in general, when you're approaching Scripture, Peter, you know uh, how how do you recommend us approaching that and reading it and seeing ourselves in it? It's been helpful for me to realize that scripture is uh, trying to do, <laughs> scripture is trying to do what scripture is trying to do. In other words, God has provided scripture to the church in order to help guide his people to uh, live out life as best as possible um, for God, for his purposes, to his ends, to his goals. And so that that's how that book operates, and maybe some of our our challenges. And I know this is a this is an evolving process. And I'm not trying to bring in uh, biological evolution here, but this is an evolving process in how we how we appreciate what Scripture is trying to do, what its purpose is. And when when we try to, or if we try to make Scripture be a book that it's not trying to be, we're going to end up with answers from it. 
um, that it never intended to give us. That's so if we great, ask uh, of, of scripture questions that we're interested in and God is not trying to answer those questions from that text, then we're going to end up with maybe affirming or demanding people believe things that God isn't, isn't demanding. And, and Jonathan, you, you raised a, a point here, which a good point, which is we have different types of literature in the Bible, um, known as genres. So we have letters in the New Testament. We have gospel narratives. A lot of the Bible is narrative. Some of it seems to be more interested in being more precise history, um, giving chronologies of who begat who and, and these right. types of things. Other sections are are laying out of laws, specific laws. And in the first chapters of Genesis, we have, well, this this type of literature that it's hard to get agreement on what this is, but it it doesn't quite read like other portions of scripture that sound more historical. In fact, there's considerable imagery in it. You have things like, you know, a, a talking serpent, a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, the, these types of like, what does that tree even look like? What is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Have, have we ever seen such a thing? So it doesn't mean there wasn't a tree and it doesn't mean that that didn't exist. It's simply saying that there's a lot of symbolism going on here. That wasn't Adam and Eve reaching to an apple tree or an orange tree or whatever it happened to be. This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What in the world is that? There's something deeper that's trying to be um, ad addressed here. And so realizing that there's different literature, there's different genres. Uh, I remember uh, as a young person reading, um, there was a book by Josh McDowell, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And I was really interested in that as a teenager trying to mm. get evidence for my faith. And he said in that book, you know, if we can't take the first chapters of Genesis literally, how can we take the rest of the Bible literally? And uh, that really struck me back then. I'm like, yeah, we've got to defend this sort of literal reading here. And my hunch is I don't think Josh McDowell would take that same position today. Mm. But it so, and I don't either. I, I think there's just too much recognition that the type of literature that people were interested in in writing and reading thousands of years ago was not trying to address the things that we're trying to um, address today. So all that to say is understanding the purpose of Scripture that God is trying to tell us who He is, mm. who we are, what He intended for human beings, and He's putting us all into a story and asking us to give ourselves to that that story and how God is fixing things and reconciling them and where he wants to take things. And there's something going on in those Genesis texts that is very important for us. But there's other things that we might, I think, we read into that text sometimes. And to an ancient person, uh, they would, you know, sort of look at us strangely, like, why are you asking that text those questions? Um, it, it doesn't, it wouldn't make sense to them. So, right. What, I can't remember who said this, but the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. Mm. And I think that's an important point to remember. It was written to these ancient people who understood things in a particular way. And so God took them where they, where they were, just like he does with us today. He, uh, he accommodated himself to them, to their understanding of the way things worked, the way the world worked, the science of the day, so to speak. And, and in that, cultural context and in their languages, he is teaching them some things about himself while he's accommodating himself to things that they believed at the time. So again, John, I better pause here no, but and, that, and that's, see if you wanna... Well, that's brilliant. I, I know that One Church TO, you guys would remember, uh, might've been a year and a half ago, Dr. Van doing in our YOLO series, talking about apocalyptic literature, and it's not really a genre we have beyond apocalyptic movies in this present age, but understanding how that's written. And sometimes when we try to, with our modern eyes, interpret a genre of literature that really doesn't exist in our culture as much today, we can read into it and look for things that the ancients would not have seen uh, the same from the same vantage point that, that we might be sitting at. And that's always the challenge of reading scripture and reading those particular portions of literature. There's a question that came in the chat room from Matt, and I thought this is kind of picks up and moves us towards the creation narrative, but picks up right with what you're talking about, uh, uh, Peter. He says this, what, what were the ancients most interested in when they were reading Genesis 1 to 3? Like, what, what was the thing that the ancients would have been leaning into? 
Yeah, great. This is a great question. Somebody really helpful on this is John Walton, and he's written a whole series of books called uh, the, the Lost World of, and he's, goes, he's got the Lost World of Genesis 1 and the Lost World of Adam and Eve and so forth. But um, in, And so he's an expert in that area. And here's one of the things that, that he brings out. He says, the ancients were more interested in the function of why things were working the way that they're working hmm. uh, uh, when they see them. Like, in other words, what is, this, what is the sun, moon, and stars for? Not really where do the stuff that makes up sun, moon, and stars come from. Hmm. So um, he, he gives the illustration and, well, let's just, let's bring it into our context. So if somebody asked you, Jonathan, like, what's the origin of one church? Hmm. And the, the answer we might give is, well, you know, a group of people way back when in the 20th century Bob got Mercer. together and thought we need a, we need a, a church in the aging court area. And uh, we believe God's called us to this area and we had meetings and we decided to do such and such. And, and, uh, and then we, we bought some property and blah, blah, blah. Like that, that's an origin story of, of where, of where people are involved, where there's purpose involved and how do, how are we functioning the way that we are? What we're probably not looking for if we asked what's the origin of one church is how did, how are the bricks in your building made? Like, mm. where did that, what factory did those come from? That's not the question that we want to know when we would ask about this. And so sometimes when we go back to Genesis 1, we're asking, where did the stuff come from? And that's a great question. And we we love that question today. We're looking at, uh, you know, how, how long ago was the universe created? And what can we know about the very, as close as we can get to the beginning of, you know, the, the, the Big Bang or when everything started, however God wanted to do that. We're very interested in that, and those are great questions. We're just exploring God's universe. But the ancients, you'll notice in Genesis 1, they're not really interested in where the stuff come, comes from. So in the beginning, Genesis 1 says, God created the heavens and the earth. And then, well, okay, so he's the, the creator of this. And then he starts taking the stuff, because apparently it's in a state of of uh, not, not necessarily chaos, but it's it's not formed into any really useful purpose, right? Mm. So the earth was without form and empty. Mm. And then we see in days one, two, and three, he begins to form and take shape with things. Day four, five, and six, if you read Genesis chapter one, he's filling it, right? So really Genesis one is the answer to Genesis one, verse two, which is the earth is formless and empty. How does God form it and shape it? How does he fill it? And and so all that to say is we, we, uh, we have a, a picture here of a number, what could be a number of different things. It's like a king walking into a throne room and simply declaring with his word, let this, let there be light, let there be, mm -hmm. you know, uh, let the water be separated from the land, let the sky be separated from the water, these types of things in a culture where, well, the other religions would have been worshiping the sun, moon, and stars in this story. God simply speaks a word and the sun, moon, and stars are created. Mm -hmm. We realize the sun, moon, and stars are not things to be worshiped. But they are set there. And then it says, why did God put them there? Also, that we'll be able to trace the seasons and know when it's light and dark, when to go to bed, when to get up and when to celebrate, you know, and all, uh, you know, different holiday or whatever the case is. God's taking these things and putting it there for a reason. And he sort of sets things up and he makes plants and animals. He puts human beings in there to be his his, his keepers, his, some call it vice regents, whatever the case is, we are his representatives, we're his imagers here on earth to sort of manage and take care of things. And then on the seventh day, it says he, and John Walton brings this out, he rested, which doesn't mean God was really tired and made, and had a nap. It's, <laughs> it's rather the picture here that after he's done, now he can get down to the business of rep, of being represented in his creation. It's sort of like when we might do a renovation in our house, and we're doing all sorts of work and we're reshaping things. You might break down a wall or a ceiling or repaint or all those sorts of different things. And then when you're done, you can get on with the business of living. And that's what's going on on day seven. God mm -hmm. rests. We're to remember that there's, you know, there's purpose to this. And so he sets human beings here in his creation as his representatives. And he's really made this earth into his, his kingdom where his, his uh, human beings can represent him and manage things and hopefully steward it well. And uh, you mentioned Pastor Keith is going to be speaking about that stewardship thing in a, in a couple of weeks. That's really our purpose. And so um, Genesis is telling us that 
God made these things for a purpose. He's given us a purpose. We have our role. We have all sorts of, of, of directions of what we ought to do and ought not to do. And we are not to worship those things that are created, but rather, in fact, we're to have a role in stewarding mm. creation to make it flourish as best God, uh, as, as best as we can with God's help. Now, human beings have gone down a different road and there's you know, a different story, but that's really what I think the story of creation is saying that the ancients were more interested in the function of things than they were where the stuff came from. And John, let me just so that I don't forget. I think it's, it's important here to say that I, I don't, I, I'm of the opinion and I, I could be wrong here, but I'm of the opinion. I'm not the only one uh, here. Uh, John Walton and others have said this, that there's probably no part of the Bible that is trying to teach us science. Um, and, and that might be controversial for some, but the, in Genesis chapter one, the, those reading that, if they were not from the Hebrew faith, if they were from some other religious faith, if they read Genesis chapter one, they would have learned nothing new about the science of the day uh, that they didn't already believe. In other words, the picture that we're getting is a God who takes water and separates it and puts it above the sky um, and there's water beneath the, the earth. There was this picture in those days, in ancient times, that you had basically a dome. And inside that dome were, were the sun, moon, and stars. And above that was water. I mean, that's just what it looks like. That's mm. the science of the day. Mm. And you knew there was water underneath the ground because if you dug, a, dug deep enough, water would seem to be under there. And in the Genesis 1 story, that's the picture that we get. God creates a dome with water above it water beneath the earth and we're living in this dome and it, again inside the dome are the sun moon and stars and every once in a while when it rains god sort of opens up the storehouses of the heavens and he lets some of that water slip down mm -hmm. into creation we can see verses about this right right in the bible elsewhere so in genesis chapter one um that's there's ancient science right in there and that's how the ancients would have looked at it so I don't think Genesis chapter one is trying to teach us anything about science because it simply adopted the ancient science of the day and was trying to use that to teach them something else. The something else was who made all this right. stuff? Why did he make it? What purpose do we have in this? So that's why I said earlier, God was accommodating himself to that, that ancient view of things. And I don't see anywhere really in the Bible that it's trying to teach us Here's, here's something in chemistry we should know. Here's physics we should know. Here's, you know, biology. It's, it's not really interested in those types of questions. God wants us, I believe, to explore those questions outside of the text. Now, they should line up ultimately, but, um, that, yeah, anyway, that, I, I hope that answers the, yeah, well, like, the question about the, it's more, more about function so the, and purpose than so it is about where the stuff came from. So in ancient going and reading Genesis chapter one, the new information for a non, uh, Hebrew person would be who created the earth, uh, less how, because they understand the function of it. It was a revelatory in the nature of who did it. Yeah. If God's wanting to say something new in Genesis one, what's not new is, well, there's water above the sky and there's a dome holding back the water and there's water beneath the, the uh, earth. That's not new. Everybody believed that. That's just ancient cosmology. So it can't be that Genesis 1 is written to teach us that. And in fact, none of us really hold that today anyway. Well, so, you know, any, any, no Christians really sort of hold that type of type of view anyway. We don't, um, I would think, most of us believe the earth goes around the sun and, and all the rest of that. But that's that's ancient cosmology. So... If there's nothing new in that regard being taught through Genesis 1, then why is Genesis 1 being written long, long time ago? It's written to say that these the, the gods that the other nations are worshiping, whether it's sun, moon, and stars, or whatever the case is, those aren't gods. God made those, and he made them mm. by simply by speaking. That's the type of God we worship. And also, he put us here, not because, well, in contrast to other religions, what was, let's say, ancient Babylonians... Uh, the purpose of human beings, they were created because the gods got hungry and they needed sacrifices. So you create basically some slaves to serve them. Whereas in Genesis chapter one, you get a picture of the God who, the God who created everything. He doesn't need anything. He, he creates us out of his creativity and his love. 
and he creates human beings not to be slaves, to bring him vegetables on a sacrificial altar, but because he wants to engage with us and he actually wants us to represent him here. Well, that's radically different than how humans are represented in in other stories. So those are the things we're learning from Genesis 1. We're not learning where the stuff came from. Uh, that's sort of a side issue. And here you have God actually using the stuff and molding it so that you can have fish and birds and human beings. Like he's making this so that we can flourish. Mm. Again, a very different picture than you would have in, in some other ancient cosmologies and origin stories. Man, uh, friends, that's worth worth the price of admission right there. That's so good, uh, Peter. A couple of questions are flying in here, but Carrie and Larry C. ask, can Peter give his thoughts on if the days in Genesis are literal days, like now, or was the time different back then? We kind of touched a little bit this on this on the weekend, but I would love to get your thoughts on this, Peter. Yeah, um, great question, and I I don't I don't see them as literal days. I mean, you you have um, so some today, like uh, and by the way, my my purpose here is not to sort of represent or tell people as a Christian, here's what you need to believe about Genesis. In fact, my my, what I hope that comes out of this is you can be a Christian and a faithful follower of Jesus and maybe have uh, a different idea of what went on in Genesis or what God is doing there than I would. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there. Are, so these days you basically have roughly three, three Christian interpretations of, of uh, creation, you know, the origins of everything you have young earth creationists, which would be, uh, Ken Ham might be a name you rec- recognize there. He'd be a, a strong proponent of this. Uh, we have, you know, between six to 10,000 years ago, God just, boom, created everything in, in six 24-hour literal days. That's, that's the way it is. And um, then you have others that say, no, there's, a, there's an old earth. They would be maybe called progressive creationists. There's an old earth. And, uh, and, and there's different ways of interpreting the, the age of the earth. We'll get to that in just one right. second. Uh, but they would, that group would tend to, um, when it comes to the creation of human beings, they would want to do some different things like that. And then you have what are today, um, the preferred name, I think they're call, calling themselves is, is evolutionary creationists. In other words, there's an old earth and also God used the process of biological evolution to bring humans to where they are today. We're still made in the image of God, but there's a, a process by which um, God did that. So all that gives us a little bit of a framework, but let's zero in on the question here about the days in Genesis. Um, a, a young earth creationist would say these are just literal 24-hour days. Uh, you have others that, that, that one of the theories that came up uh, along the way was maybe there's a, um, it's called the gap theory. Maybe there's a gap between Genesis 1 verse 1 and verse 2. So verse one says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse two, and the earth was uh, formless and empty. Mm-hmm. And uh, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And and uh, says the, the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So maybe some suggest, maybe there was like, God created everything perfectly. And then, but in verse two, we see everything sort of chaotic and it's a mess. Like maybe there was a sort of prehistory where something happened and the earth got wrecked, maybe demonic forces wrecked it or some, whatever the case is. And so that allows us to, the idea here is though, in Genesis 1, we can have an earth that was created millions or billions of years ago, but then there was a whole history we've lost. And Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 is sort of the, the, new, the new story, a restored creation that might've happened about 6,000, 10,000 years ago. So there's this big gap. And so some people have believed that. And so uh, there's, by the way, there's strengths and weaknesses to all of these types of, of theories. Another theory is that each day represents um, uh, maybe a, a long period of time because, mm. you know, there's verses in scripture where Peter in the New Testament says with the Lord, the day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. And maybe a day uh, in Genesis chapter one, because the word, the Hebrew word for day, yom, can be used to mean a literal day, or, but it can also just mean a, a lengthy period of time. And maybe this is sort of a metaphorical, it's just a symbolic, a lengthy period of time. And, and, but maybe it, it tracks along with the, the scientific story. Uh, and then there's another theory. And John, you and I were, were talking about it just before we got on today about the appearance of age. Maybe mm-hmm. God just, Maybe God just made the earth to appear really, really old, but he just did this 
six to 10,000 years ago, and we would never know any different. If you ever seen the movie, The Matrix, you know, you could never actually prove that you're not in the Matrix because right. the Matrix is that in which you live. So it could be that God created this whole universe two minutes ago with all our memories intact and we'd never know the difference. Like he could manage that. Question is, does God represent himself like that? Right. Um, so those are some ways of interpreting the the days. And, and I'm going to give one other alternative here, but let me say one other thing. For those of you who are watching that come from uh, a Pentecostal tradition or history, it's interesting to note that even some early Pentecostals, and by that I mean turn of the 20th century, so early 1900s, one of um, the people that was that, that was very instrumental in starting off Pentecostalism was a fellow named Charles Parham, and he writes in his books that he had he he was not a young Earth creationist. He said, "Well, no, nobody's sort of." Uh, I have a quote in front of me. Let me just read a bit of it. He says, "Long ago, the theory." that seven days of creation were 24 hours duration began to lose its force upon the minds of people. And today is found only in narrow intellects with moss covered <laughs> growth. Okay. So I get, well, moss covered words, growth. I love that line. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you're a young earth creationist, he would say you're, you are, you're, you're absurd. Nobody believes that anymore. And now he believed in creation. He just, you know, mm -hmm. he, he would say the earth is, tens of thousands. He didn't know how old it was, but geology really took off in the 1800s. And so Parham was actually using science and saying, well, the earth can't be only 6,000 years old. And it's not a little 24 hour days because we know from geology, it's something else. So here you have this, you know, follower of Jesus, Pentecostal guy saying the only one who, who believe in sort of 6,000 years, and you might do that. So don't take part don't be insulted by Charles Parham. Well, you can be insulted by him, but you don't have to take him seriously if you don't want to. But he's just saying you have a narrow intellect. So right. he's, you know, that's his opinion on that. And, right. and uh, but he's, he, all I'm saying is that this just doesn't come up recently that people are, are realizing, like, there's probably other ways to read the text here. So let me give you an alternative to the literal days theory. I, I just think, what if, what if, if Genesis is interested in function and not where does stuff come from, um, then we can just see this more in a, I don't know if poetry is the right, right way to mm. talk about it because that has some implications about how the genre should work. But my, my own view here, and it's, I'm not making this up. I'm just saying from what I've read from other people who know way more about this is that probably what's going on in Genesis one is more a presentation of what, of what God is doing as opposed to exactly some sort of timeline. And the idea of days is being held up there uh, to give, give us mental imagery to put things together. So let me give you an example here. Um, this has been noticed for hundreds of years, but Genesis chapter one, as I mentioned, it's about how God is shaping what is formless and filling what is empty. And on day one, God... Uh, separates light from darkness. Day two, he separates water from land. On day three, he separates land from water. That's giving form to things. And then we start noticing on day four, what's he doing? Well, he's creating the sun, moon, and stars. And we might start to ask ourselves, well, how do you have sun, moon, and stars if light and darkness is mm -hmm. beforehand? I mean, you guess light existed before sun, moon, and stars, all that. But it's just interesting. What we have in day one is he's shaping, he's separating light from darkness, giving it shape. And on day four, he's filling it with the objects that present that shape, you know, the things that give light. Uh, on day two, he has separating water and, and, and sky. And on day five, sort of a parallel here, you have the create, he's filling it with fish and birds. That's mm -hmm. what it talks about. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Those creatures that live in the sky, those creatures that live in the water. Day six, or sorry, day, day three, he's, you know, separating land and water. Day six, you've got plants growing. You've got other animals and finally the creation of humans, th things that live on land. And what you get is the impression here that day one parallels with four, two with five, three with six, and seven sort of wraps it up. And then God was done with his shaping and filling, which means that maybe these are not sequential here. Maybe there's a, a Hebrew poetry. Maybe there's a there's an imagery. Here's the God who comes into into or out of his throne room, so to speak, and commands, let there be light, let there be this, let there be that. And these things are being shaped, but how they're being shaped, all these things, it, that's not really, I don't think, what God was trying to do. So I don't take the days literally. I take them more figuratively, poetically. And there's definitely parallels and poetic parallels and figuratism going on in that first chapter of Genesis 
just in the way this is uh, works its way out. Again, you know, if we take it really literally, you do end up with sun, moon, and stars existing before right. light, and all, or uh, you do end up with um, uh, plants trying to grow sometimes before they. <laughs> Before the, maybe the sun. Anyway, there's, if you look at it closely, there's, there's just some problems that we run into. And, um, so I've just become more and more comfortable with realizing I don't think there's science or biology trying to go on here. I don't think it's, it's, uh, astrophysics going on. And I don't think it's biology trying to be taught to us. It's more about, again, who God is, what his purpose is for human beings, why we exist and what our calling is. So far more about that. And that would have been new. For well, those it, ancients, it's interesting compared to what they were getting elsewhere. It's interesting. Anita Tong kind of jumped in with a question right along the lines of what you're just speaking, Peter. Like he, she asked, if we do read creation as poetic, how does one determine narrative text versus po- poetry within Genesis? And uh, yeah. I think you alluded to the fact that that uh, uh, and even that creation, uh, one of the five uh, possible interpretations. Uh, recognizes the repetition and rhythm of the days that seem to be poetic in nature. Um, but, but how, I, I think you may have touched already on this, but that's an interesting question. Just that, uh, how do you know if it's a narrative or it's poetic? Yeah. And those are, that's, that's, uh, that's good. I, I think that when we see, especially Genesis chapter, uh, one through 11, we, I mean, I, I find it to be different than chapter 12 onward. And right. again, when Genesis was written, um, when, when the Bible books were, were written originally, there's no chapters, there's no verse divisions. These are all been things that we added later on for convenience to help us find our way around the, the text. And, um, yet there does seem to be a, a, a break in the way things are being talked about between Genesis 11 and then 12 onward. Chapter 12 onward tells the story of the calling of of Abram and mm-hmm. he becomes Abraham and through him comes the the Hebrew nation and God has a special plan through him and ultimately Jesus and and uh that you know sort of a big plan going on and that has more um a historical ring to it or feel to it you have people living in certain places certain times uh certain cities moving to moving around like that whereas the first 11 chapters there there are things in there that um almost lead us to sort of even the names of people. So the names of, of Adam and Eve were um, represent, you know, the Eve, the mother of mother of all, or this type of thing, or, or uh, Adam's name being tied in initially to being um, just representative of, of, of not a name, so to speak, but just human. This is just man made of the, the dust of the earth, these types of ideas. So there's a lot of imagery, a lot of symbolism going on. Again, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a talking serpent, these types of things. Like, I'm not saying that didn't happen, that a certain serpent did or didn't talk. I'm just saying that, that some of the, um, the things going on, they have also the tree of life in the garden. What is that? What kind of fruit is that? What does that look like? Like those terms are not chosen arbitrarily. And the ancients would have recognized that as well. Here we you have the ancient people, Adam and Eve, our ancestors, eating from the tree of life that allows them to to stay alive. In other words, God is going to they're in a relationship with God that is sustained. They disobey God, cutting themselves off from the source of life by taking something that they weren't supposed to take, which is mm. fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're they're transgressing their boundary of what it is to be a human being, and we can have other other conversations about that. All that to say is that the stories, the, um, uh, I don't want to say exaggerations. It's just, it, it's, it's meant to get us into a, a, a primordial history that doesn't look the same as some of the other literature. I, I think some of the trouble is, though, what do we call this early, early literature? And scholars are divided on that. Is it poetry? Is it that? But I think there is, you know, more consensus on these first 11 chapters don't read the same way as the rest of the story where it goes off in Genesis from chapter 12. So that, that'd be where I'm sort of settling myself on that. Here's another question. uh, Abby C asks, if the point of Genesis and the creation story is the point to the who, how do we point the people of today to that who? 
especially since some current scientific creation theories espouses no one created the universe, and some philosophical theories point to the nature of different gods creating the earth. Okay. So a couple different questions in there. Yeah. How do we point to the who when we have, let's say, uh, and I, I'm assuming here the scientific theory that's being referenced here is, is perhaps the Big Bang Theory. And um, what I'm going to try to do is avoid talking about science because I'm not a, I'm not qualified there. You have somebody on Sunday coming that's qualified to do that. Mm-hmm. What I will say is this, though. I have no problem with the Big Bang Theory. Um, not the TV show here, but the, uh, the theory <laughs> of, of uh, how the universe emerged, or with either of those, actually, because I just see it as the way God did stuff. For a, for a science, I, I do, I do pause if a scientist would say, well, the fact that we understand that the stuff around us, so the matter and energy around us, um, emerged from the Big Bang, and therefore that shows there's no God, I don't think that logically follows. So here I'm going to fall back into more philosophical, theological thinking and just saying, just because we've discovered more about the way the universe was made and when it was made doesn't discount that there was a maker of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and sometimes scientists and Christians take that sort of approach. And in, in fact, I, I was going to mention this to, so it fits in here. Well, sometimes Christians and, and those who, it's not Christians versus scientists, <laughs> Christians and those who are not, let's, let's just say for the sake of argument, atheist agnostic scientists, sometimes they both take a, a similar approach, which, which doesn't logically follow. And it's this, we call it the, the uh, God of the gaps theory. Right. And um, Christians can take this approach when we, uh, f- for example, believe, um, well, we can, we can really know that God created things wherever science hasn't given us an answer yet. Right. Uh, we don't know, um, such and such about how fully about maybe how the DNA molecule, uh, emerged because that's God, right? That's, there's that gap there. We know this much and we know what came before it, but we don't know this. So that's, that must be where God did his work. And Christians sometimes take that God of the gaps view. And likewise, an atheist, uh, can take that type of view as well and say, see, the more science discovers, the more we don't need God. And that's, in some ways, how some who are not Christians, um, who would say, we don't need a creator of this universe because we know there was a big bang. Uh, well, that, that, again, it doesn't follow logically. And so two things. So let me just go back to the God of the gaps thing for the, mo- for the moment. The, the way the Bible talks about knowing how God operates is not by looking where we haven't figured out where how things work in the universe through science. It's rather the heavens declare the glory of God. Mm. The, we look around at what he's made and we become more and more enamored with it. And so actually Christians who are scientists will talk about this. The more that they understand biology in the cells, suddenly they're overwhelmed with worship, not because they don't know how it works, but because they're discovering more about how it works and they realize, and God made it this way. It's amazing. They're not looking for a gap. That's actually a more biblical way of looking at things. So Christians should never be afraid of science discovering something uh, as if the more science discovers, the less of a gap God has to live in. And maybe one day he's going to be gone altogether. This is the God who made everything. Mm. And so he's the one that created things with its processes um, and we ought not to be nervous about newer things that science discovers. In fact, Christians should be celebrating it and joining into it. Um, and so if we, if, a, though, if an atheist or someone else says, well, we don't need God because we have the, you know, big bang, uh, I would just say, again, that doesn't logically follow. All you're telling us is here's how things have worked out since creation. What we don't have is the, you know, well, what, what caused this? And I don't think science actually will get us that far. It can get us pretty close to a lot of things. It can go quite far back into, um, into you know, the, or the first microseconds of the Big Bang and that type of thing. And then it gets all blurry and the laws of physics apparently break down. And But I remember hearing Lawrence Krauss, who is an atheist, on a TVO 
television show a few years ago saying, you know, we've got even further back into the early, early stages of, of uh, understanding the Big Bang and, and this, this changes everything. We don't need God anymore. We don't need this. This is moving physics into metaphysics. And I, I remember sitting there just thinking, you don't, you don't understand what the word metaphysics means. <laughs> yeah. Um, because what he's basically saying is because we've discovered more about the, the work, about physics at that point, uh, therefore we've, we've proven where all this stuff came from. But we're like, no, you've just, you've just gone back as far as physics will take you. Uh, there's something else beyond that that I think the Bible and theology would talk about that's saying, but God's the, the cause of this. And so other theories that might come out are there, are they multiverses? Are we just one universe among millions or billions? I think all that does is, I don't have the answer to that, but I think <laughs> all that does is it pushes back the question just again, like, well, where did the multiverses come from? Where do the, like, it just keeps pushing it back. And what, what, uh, Genesis is trying to tell us is, look, however we discover the universe looks like, whatever thing, we don't know what people will discover 50 years, 100 years from now, maybe amazing things. Um, they might question things that we believe now in science. Science continues to develop and, and uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of those developments and learning new things. It's very, very cool. But what the Bible is saying is behind all of that, mm. there's an intelligence, there's a God who cares for this creation, who made this. And now go crazy, find your, you know, uh, discover it. Scientists, do your best, discover the wonder that is our creation. So I guess that's my Maybe it would have been long-winded response there to what do we say when, when science is saying we don't need God? I would say that's probably not a scientific conclusion or statement. Um, science can tell us a lot about the matter and energy and created world. I think if a scientist says that, and Richard Dawkins frequently does this, he's actually delving over into philosophy and theology and denying that he's doing that at mm -hmm. that point. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not a biologist, so I'll let him do the biology. But when it comes to those philosophy theology points there i think he's he's speaking beyond what he is an authority to speak on and he's he's over speaking in those mm -hmm. cases and we can just say i don't think you've actually demonstrated maybe what you think you've demonstrated and that doesn't undermine his authority in areas that he he knows about it's just just an over speak there uh great question still coming in in the chat room uh larry cm1 asks uh, has the world been changed and science changed after the fall of man, where nature became imperfect also? If so, how do you think it is now different? That's a wow. great question. Okay, so <clears throat> maybe that's a science thing. I, I, but I, I guess it's asking a, a, a biblical question as it well. Yeah. Did, did the fall of human beings cause Earth to be as it not supposed to be? And I think... Christians would say yes. And, and the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans chapter 5, he talks about this, that as human beings sort of embraced uh, the, the sin that our ancestors, Adam and Eve, brought into the world, um, we all face death because we're cut off from God, who is the source of life. And he's trying to restore that life to us so that we can we can continue on living you know, for him. So, I mean, that, that's this larger Bible story. Uh, so I, I would say that that the earth is not functioning as it should right now. Human beings are not functioning as imagers of God as we should. There's a profound brokenness within human beings, uh, socially, spiritually. It starts spiritually, but it affects us socially, psychologically, um, in every other way. And we see it regularly in the way that we interact with one another. Um, the way that we have conflicts with one another, the way that we mistreat the very environment that God has given us to steward over. These are all, there's a million and one ways that we aren't functioning rightly today. And I think this question though is about, um, you know, the physical universe. Like, is there something wrong with it? And there, there's indication in, in the book of Romans and other places in the New Testament that God is looking at making not just human beings right, but making all creation right again, uh, maybe even beyond what it was in the beginning. I mean, um, so God creates the heavens and the earth and, and says it's very good, but he doesn't say it's absolutely the best it could be. Uh, human beings are here to help other things go on, right? So 
we see in the picture in Revelation at the end of the Bible, there's um, uh, God filling everything in every way, his presence everywhere. It's like a, a, a super creation. It's everything mm. is um, not only back to normal, but better than it was. So we know that God's not satisfied with the way things are. But I want to say one other thing about this, that there there is discussion among Christians as to uh, was there things like death prior to the fall of Adam and Eve? We know that biology doesn't function without cells dying and new ones emerging. So in that sense, I guess there, there had to be, because that's simply how plants and animals and everything else lives. Um, w- but human beings being cut off spiritually from God um, happened when Adam and Eve fell, whatever that looked like. And now that has affected not only human beings, but because human beings are given that that important position in creation, as far as they go, creation goes. And again, the New Testament speaks of not only the redemption of humans, but the redemption of creation as well. So, um, yeah, <laughs> uh, Christians are in disagreement over this. Some think things, uh, there, there's sort of no death, no sickness, whatever, for animals or anyone else before Adam and Eve sinned. And others would say, uh, Adam and Eve, there was death before the fall, but um, what Adam and Eve did is they, in their sin, they removed the ability of humans to escape the repercussions of that. And they had the tree of life available to them. And now are, they are cut off from that. So now they are facing the same death decay that everything else is facing. So I don't know where I am on that, but those mm-hmm. are two types of directions we could take. In any case, what we do know is things are not the way God wants them to be. And we have a role in helping uh, bring about a more redemptive posture while we're here in in this time in history. Uh, friends, uh, we're almost coming to a close, but listen, uh, maybe Matt, you can put in the chat room uh, a link to Master's College and Seminary that uh, Dr. Peter Newman teaches at, and that's uh, affiliated with our church, our movement, the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, but also maybe his Twitter handle. He's a great Twitter follow. Uh, just on not only social issues, but theological issues. And he's a great blog uh, that's available that you might enjoy too. Uh, But uh, uh, Peter, maybe just as a question, I'm thinking of those that might be listening and they're going like, okay, this is all swirling in my head now. Uh, How can I have confidence in this Bible if 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 I can't sit down and read it literally? And uh, I'm thinking of just a, a recalibration as we look at not just the creation narrative, but the totality of Scripture. And I know one of the jobs of pastors, you've, you've pastored, uh, you've been a, a pastor too, is applying God's Word and hearing from God to, to speak to a congregation about that and teaching it. But, but we're all imperfect in the way that we, and we have limited understanding. Uh, what I believed when I was an 18-year-old going to college for the first time and studying scripture is so different from where I'm at now after years of reading and years of study and years of, of seeing life unfold. Uh, what do you say to people yeah. just to encourage them? Because, you know, we have this inspired, uh, li- I call it like a library, really, of, of ancient documents in the Bible. How would you encourage us to approach it? Um, yeah, this is a, f- a fantastic question. I, I would remind us of something we mentioned earlier tonight, which is, first, the Bible is written for us. So God's given it for us, but it's not written to us. And in other words, there's going to be, um, we're going to have to at least either learn or, or, or talk to others who, who have the time to, to, uh, provide us with, with help in this. Cause it, um, of recognizing that this is an ancient book and we can't just pick it up and read it like we do a magazine or a blog today. Um, there's some things that will come through pretty clearly about how God wants us to live and some other things, but there's other texts that are pretty difficult. And I don't even think we're meant to do this on our own. God gifts people to help us understand these difficult passages. So it's probably helpful for us to take a deep breath and say, it's okay for me to not know everything right now (laughs) and give ourselves some space and some margin where we can say, you know what, there may be some questions I have here or doubts I even have, and that's okay. We have to give ourselves time to process the ideas, process the thoughts. Even tonight, hearing some of these things, uh, yeah, years ago, I might have been, might have been 
really anxious about this. What, what does this mean? Does, is the Bible isn't true or that? No, it, it's true. It's just our approach to it, our interpretation of it might not be close enough, closely enough aligned with what God was trying to say through it. Right. Um, we, here, here's the thing. If this is God's word, then it's going to be true because it comes from God. Likewise, though, God also reveals himself in the creation around us. And so technically everything that science would learn also because God made it, that would also be something that God believes because <laughs> he made it, right? So science and whatever science discovers and whatever the Bible says ought to match up entirely. But we know every once in a while we come into questions. How, how, do, how come this doesn't line up just right? How come that doesn't line up just right? And so again, give ourselves some time, but recognize this. Any discrepancy between what science discovers and what we're reading in the Bible, the discrepancies happen not because God contradicts himself in what he's created or his word. The discrepancies happen in, in and through our interpretation of things. That could be Christians trying to interpret the Bible. And sometimes we realize later, oh, I interpreted that wrongly because I didn't quite get the context. But also science can get into uh, mistakes because they interpret the data wrong. And that's how theories become revised and tweaked that over time. In fact, that's what scientists want to do. They want to discover things that they didn't have just right. So they discover something new that we have a, a better model of, of uh, scientific understanding. So scientists recognize this. They're interpreting reality with the data that they have, and they can always be, there's always room for improvement. So too with our interpretation of scripture. So if there's a discrepancy, it's at the place of interpretation, human interpretation. There's only one who has perfect interpretation, and that's God. Mm. And I'm not God, we're not God, which means this, that our knowledge is limited. Uh, and even with limited knowledge, God says, that's, that's, that's good enough. Trust me, give me your loyalty, your allegiance, follow Jesus, and this book is going to help you along the way. And uh, so read it, and it's going to be life-giving for you. And try to understand as best you can on your own, but with the help of others. We're not meant to be alone in the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit has gifted others to, who can spend their days reading ancient texts to try to interpret this stuff. And, and I don't have time to do all that, right? Mm -hmm. we, we got other things that God has called us to, but together we can give ourselves some space, slowly learn things. But I think the big core issues, like Jonathan, you said at the beginning, those core issues are pretty solid within Christian theology about, about Jesus' death, resurrection, these types of things. In fact, without those things, there's no faith to talk about, right? right. So those things are, are pretty core. We hang on to those. But these other areas, uh, God knows we, we don't have all the answers to this. And, and he's quite happy to not always provide the answers right away right. for us. For, that, for hundreds and, in fact, thousands of years, people thought that the sun went around the earth. And God knew better. And he was, he thought, well, for the time being, it, it allows them to sail their ships and their calendars are pretty good. <laughs> They'll discover they need to have a different view of reality when they want to, sh to shoot a rocket to Mars. Like they're going to need to have a better understanding. He was quite happy to let human beings take the time to discover that. Because in the meantime, we could actually live our lives and do everything he had asked us to do in the way that we are treating one another. And we didn't always live up to it, but we had everything we needed. God will give us the knowledge we need over time to do what he, he wants us to do. And so in the meantime, recognize this, our interpretations are never gonna be perfect. There'll always be room for improvement. And that's where I, I've settled that's allowed me to relax in right. this. I don't have, I don't, I haven't made up my mind on all of these questions. We haven't even addressed all of them tonight. But there's place to relax. There's margin here. And uh, I, I'm trying more and more to let Genesis speak um, for us, <laughs> recognizing it wasn't written to me and trying to get my head into the heads of the ancients, which is you know a challenge. But, John, that's where I'd, I'd sort of leave it there. The, that, that interpretation piece, we got to leave some room, some buffer there for right. ourselves. Well, our friends, you know, in weekend gatherings, you hear Pastor Keith and I often quoting biblical scholars. It's because uh, as pastors, we don't have the time 
to do the depth of work and, and maybe not even the gifting to do some of the depth of work that people like Peter and other biblical scholars do and, and our own Dr. Van Johnson does. Uh, they have dedicated great portions of their life and education and finances to be able to dig deeply into those texts. And I'm a beneficiary of that. And then I hope to pass that on to you to be able to package it in a way that that people are able to uh, accessibly understand scripture. But I, I love the fact that you land on some mystery there, Peter. There is some mystery that, uh, and um, there are, we will, we will know in part in this life. And yet we're exploring. Yep. And I love the hunger. Like there's so many more questions in the chat room, Peter, we don't have time to get to. And so I, I think, you know, we're going to have to do a part two. And uh, because I think there's a lot of stuff uh, coming in, so many good questions. You know, I'm, I'm just you know, somebody, Rusty's asking, what does it mean that the word is alive? And Darrell, I'd love to dig into that question of the physical and spiritual death uh, some more. Any resources? She's asking, uh, Carol, do you think if a man had total access to the tree of good and evil, we wouldn't need science today? Uh, Steve P says, it looks uh, to me like there is a time gap between the beginning and the now. And you kind of touched on this already, Peter. Would this imply an old earth view? Listen, thank you for thinking, friends. Thank you for thinking and processing with us tonight. And I hope that even as Peter kind of wrapped that up, uh, I, I'm so confident in the person of Jesus. And we talked about that vice grip of what we grab onto and and how some things we know in part and we, we just hold on to a little less with a tight grip because as we encounter new information or new understanding, it doesn't need to rock or jeopardize our faith. Our faith is firmly in Christ. But some of these narratives, uh, because of the ancient narratives that they're a part of, obviously, that's why we are so thankful for people like Peter. Thanks for joining us tonight, man. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, John. Hey, is I don't know if you've been recommending. Whoops, dropped something. Uh, if you've been recommending um, any resources, but I think I mentioned this one to you, John. Like, if you're just looking for an all-in-one, uh, this book called Origins by Deborah and Lauren Harzma. I don't know if you can see it yeah. on the screen there, yeah. but um, that this one, uh, they're they're evolutionary creationists. That's their position, but their book isn't written so much to provide. Um, uh, an argument for their position as it is to just say, here's the scope of different things that Christians, uh, the different positions that Christians are taking on issues like the origin of the universe, Adam and Eve, and they're just laying it out. I, I felt they were very fair. They show the strengths and weaknesses of each position. And they're just saying, look at here, here's the reason why uh, it's okay. If Christians don't end up in this camp or this camp or this camp, there's room to give ourselves time to think these things through and I, I found that just sort of an all-in-one place you can go, and uh, it, it's a good read and, and might be helpful for a lot of the questions that are being asked tonight. That's great. Uh, friends, if you go to, and maybe in the chat room, Matt can put it, a link to our Planet Earth series, uh, you'll notice a number of resources that Dr. Catherine Hayhoe has added there that we'll lean into next week. But I'm going to be adding later this week... Uh, uh, Dr. Newman has given me a lot of resources and links. We're going to put a number of those in, uh, on that page so you can get, you can access that this week. You can look into, if you want to dig into this deeper, you can certainly do that. And there will be uh, some really accessible videos too by this couple that you just referenced from that book. Some really accessible videos that are, you know, really, uh, easy to understand, but also to, uh, uh, give you a sense of the breadth of the thought around uh, the creation narrative. So thanks for joining us. We're glad you're here and make sure to join us this coming weekend, Saturday, 5.30, Sunday, 9.30 or 11.15. Dr. Hale, it's going to be a great weekend. We're going to do Q&A at the end of each of our gatherings. Jump in, ask questions, don't be shy and don't wait to the end of the talk to do it. Do it throughout the talk so we're ready to go with uh, Dr. Hayhoe. Thanks again, uh, Peter. God bless, man. Thank you, Jonathan. Blessings. See you guys. Bye.